Vernomatic Productions. This is Darren Paltrowitz, host of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz, author of DLR book about Diamond David Lee Roth. And you have the distinct damn pleasure of listening to the Vernomatic and Metal Walt on Metal Mayhem ROC. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno and direct from New Jersey. Metal Waltz. Good evening, everybody, and happy holidays to all. As always, new content drops Thursday nights. Well, for this holiday season, we came around with a really cool episode for you tonight. We welcome Darren Paltrowitz onto the show. Darren has a brand new book coming out January 1st called DLR, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. This is a look back at the last 40 years of the life of David Lee Roth It's inspired by the mystique that is Diamond Dave. You know, the uh, love him or hate him, Dave is one of the greatest entertainers to ever hit the stage. Through our discussion, we take a deep dive into the VH stories, the Dave and Sammy tour gossip from the early 2000s, Dave's quick radio show stint following up Howard Stern, the Van Halen reunion, Dave living in Tokyo, um, you know, just then all other shenanigans. It's, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So that's coming up in just a second. But before then, we want to invite you to get up to the website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Join our community. Sign up for the newsletter. This is our way to stay in touch with you with emails about new podcast releases, new YouTube videos, alerts for our live radio show on Monday nights, uh, recent episodes we have in the drop-down box that you could download. Last week, we had Wicked and their new album, Sunburn. That's coming out. Kirk Hammett was here a couple of weeks ago reminiscing about the recording of Kill Em All up in Rochester. And Steve Roney and Scott Davis were on promoting an amazing book they have out called Pictures Alive, Rock Shows of the 80s and Beyond. So again, all those are up on the website. Download them. Subscribe to the pod. Leave a review. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff really does help. Now, let's talk some David Lee Roth with Darren Paltrowitz, author of the new book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. For my co-host, Metal Walt, I'm the Vernomatic, and this is Metal Mayhem ROC. Well, it's Christmas time, and it's the season to give. We have the author from the brand new book that's coming out January 1st, DLR. David Lee Roth, how he changed the world. Let's welcome to the show, Darren Paltrowitz. Okay, okay, okay. I'll take that introduction. <laughs> okay. I mean, a pleasure to be here, Vernomatic and Metal Walt. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm with you guys. Big, big fan of Van Halen and Diamond Dave himself. Darren, I'd like to introduce you to my partner, Metal Walt. He's down in uh, East Hanover, New Jersey. The, that's uh, one of the top town, uh, top thousand towns in Jersey, right? Absolutely. So, uh, Darren, I'm going to hit you between the eyes with my first question for you. 
what prompted you to write a book about David Lee Roth? Because this is not some other, you know, just another Van Halen history regurgitated book. I'm a big fan of the weird side of David Lee Roth. Growing up, I'm 53. <laughs> I lived the lean years of the 90s and the 2000s. I probably know just as much as you, but why? Why not? That would be the David Lee Roth correct answer. You know, you have to get the contrarian thing. Why did you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? But uh, long story short, I've been doing a lot of interviews because I do junkets five, six days a week. And just to amuse myself, like throwing in Van Halen questions. And then before long, I realized between that and interviewing people who played with Roth, worked with Roth in different capacities. Hey, I think I got a book here. So I started compiling it showed it to some literary agents and one of them, and it only takes one literary agent to sell a book. One of them went, you got a book. You just got to put together this proposal. And when you have to put together one of these proposals, most people would just walk away and go, oh yeah, I'll do it later. I think my literary agent was going, yeah, he's never going to do this, but turned one in about 48 hours later. And he's I think he had the offer within 48 hours. So it was a pretty quick process. And then you got to write the book. But Darren, just a, a question, though. Was the intrigue to write the book about the quirkiness of Dave, the mystery of Dave? Like, what was it? Is, is it the mysterious side that you said, you know what? I've heard enough. I've talked enough about this. I've read stories. I've read articles. I've been to his shows. And this guy's out there. And I'm going to try to figure it out and document it. The direction of the book changed a few times because I outright said, if Dave is going to participate in this book, I'm out of courtesy going to give creative control to some extent. And his team did not get back to me after multiple reach outs and carrier pigeon attempts at communication and all sorts of ways that you could try and reach him being a private investigator, knowing what's legal and what's not legal. So I said, okay, well, he's not going to do this. Now I got to get the real story. And as you learn over time, Dave has certain people under non-disclosures. And then there's other people who go, I never want to hear that name ever again. Yeah. And just as you find out people who go, oh, I love Dave. Haven't spoken to him in a lot of years. So I kind of realized that the story was going to be a combination of stuff that's already documented and trying to confirm whether or not it was true. And then also getting some of these people who haven't told their stories to tell their side of it and realizing it's not a black and white story. It's definitely the gray, the in-between. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. It was I was going to ask you, what what does this book bring that hasn't been documented as a Van Halen fan? You know, we know a lot of these stories, but what I really enjoyed was when you started getting granular, when you started talking to the second and third uh, soundboard tech from the Dave and Sammy tour and started really uh, pulling the layers back. I think at times Dave gets a bad rap for uh, being uncooperative, where in actuality it's calculated. Um you know, let's. I have yeah. a lot of notes. Let's get right into it. Uh, the meat and the potatoes. Uh, some of my talking points that Sam and Dave tour from 2002. Um, okay. I remember up here in Rochester, we had a scheduled date for Syracuse. And really? I remember that the last two dates of the tour were canceled after the Jones, Bre Jones Beach Long Island show and the New York City 
I think it was the VMAs. Can you comment on that? You have any info on why those last two dates were uh, canceled? And is the rumor true that the the tour just imploded by that point? Sam had enough. Now, I'm not sure about the Jones Beach show. I thought that one skipped Jones Beach and did PNC Bank Arts in Jersey, which is basically the Jones Beach of Jersey. Yeah, it's it's one of those live nation venues where it has the lawn and holds, you know, 10 to 15,000 people and it gets mostly the same shows as Joe as Jones Beach. But long story short, the the tour did implode. I think I did include in the book that according to a few people, it was supposed to be like an 18 month run. It was supposed to go to Europe and Japan, mm-hmm. maybe future legs of that tour. And Sam is who pulled the plug on. It. Sam has commented uh, nonstop about this tour. Dave has never said much publicly about it. When you call Dave difficult, nine times out of 10, maybe 99 times out of 100, he doesn't even address it. You'll see some interviews like the one he did on Adam Carolla, where he goes, yeah, I'm the head case. Who is it? Mm-hmm. He'll talk about being in therapy. But if you notice, it's Sam who's thrown all the barbs about Dave being difficult on this tour, not vice versa. Maybe, I, Dave, maybe Dave was, quote, difficult because he wasn't playing Sammy's game. You know, he didn't want to go out and, and sing on stage and do a Michael Anthony, Sammy, you really got me. He didn't want to do these joint press conferences. You know, Dave's calculated and he was uh, he wasn't there to make it a um, forefronted show. I was at the Camden, New Jersey show, um, and I remember that tour very well. And what was what was cool about it from the fans? It was the tension, right? Because they were they were trading off on who was going to headline each night. I mean, these guys are two egomaniacs, right? And it's something (laughs) as small as to, to the average fan. What difference does it make whether you go on at 730 or 915? But to those guys, it's it's a problem, right? It's like Dave is probably like, motherfucker, I, I get to close this show. Who knows if they're picking favorites, right? And, you know, and that kind of thing. And I do remember at back in that press time, there was, of course, the chatter of will they join each other on the end of whoever's closing set, maybe to do a couple of Van Halen songs. And I don't think that ever happened to my to my knowledge. It, it did not happen. I'm sorry to rudely interrupt you. That'll be the first of many times, Walt. But I think these <laughs> days we're used to seeing tours like Chicago, Earth, Wind and Fire, whoever Chicago tours with, where the end of the night that band comes out or this new kids on the block tour, the mixtape tour, where they're performing the hits with the people. Brett Michaels is doing that on the party, bro. Nope, not Sam and Dave. Sam and Dave is literally Sam does this time. Dave does this time or vice versa. And that's what that was. But I think knowing what we know now about the concert industry, we would go, there is a way for them to do some kind of a joint set. It would be the norm for bands that like each other. So many of the tours I saw at Jones Beach this summer, they brought out somebody from the prior act and or they talked lovingly about the other act as part of their forced banter between songs. I mean, just look what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago when the press comes out about, uh, the, you know, the Sam, Mikey, Joe Satriani, Bonham tour. And mm-hmm. it's, we're led to believe Dave is going to be invited up to to guest. And then Sam says, no, fuck that. That's not what I actually said. I don't want that motherfucker there. Basically what he said. And yeah. it goes back to 2002, 20 years ago. It's the same shit. Yeah, I, I'm sure um, knowing what I know, which is not even 
30% of the story, because I don't think that any of us really know everything that happened. I think a lot of things have been taken to the grave and or to the NDA that cannot be revoked. Mm-hmm. That aside, you know, I, they had differences before 2002, those two guys. And I think us as people who work normal jobs, we're probably here. Okay, so so what did Sammy do to you? That, how is that an issue? I think we would hear these grown up, quote unquote, problems and go, dude, that's crazy. You got to be an adult here. I th- I think DLR called Sammy's bluff. I think Sammy percent under like uh, and uh, he he called his bluff. Goes yeah, sure, let's get it on. You know, I I, I side with DLR when it comes to the Van Halen just because of the music. I like the music more. Going back to that Sam and Dave tour. You mentioned in the book that this really was rumor has it was a precursor to a uh, like the kitchen sink tour back yes. then. Yes, it, it really was. And I've heard different things. I think my source on that was Doug Short, who has since passed, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. he was a tour manager and sound man for Dave. He'd also worked for Prince. Doug Short, really popular guy amongst crew people. So he told me some stuff. Jesse Harms who was Sammy's keyboardist in that era, who had actually also played on Edom and Smile, who, if rumors serve correct, was offered the job before Brett Tuggle to be Dave's keyboardist. He remembered some stuff. And a lot of these things are very different from what Sammy has said in his book, in interviews, etc. But we usually only get Sammy's opinion on these things. So these people have hinted at, oh yeah, um, there was this was supposed to be the non-Halen tour, then maybe it could have been a precursor to this or that. But I look at it and it's going, this was Dave's uh, public job interview to rejoin Van Halen. That's what I think it was to show everyone, hey, I'm ready, you guys. I'm still in shape. I can still sing these songs. I could do the tour. Because you got to remember, too, like the tables turned for these two guys, right? Dave was all the rage up until 84 then Sam was like, okay, you got to prove it now to Van Halen. Dave come back equally with Edom and Smile and Skyscraper. And then the then the cliff dropped off for Dave completely, yeah. right? From from basically a little late enough to through the 2000s until the reunion tour. Yeah, I followed him. I saw every goddamn tour in the clubs, the bars, the sheds, the medium-sized festivals. Right. I can't say they were bad. They were good. Yeah. But Dave, Dave was battling upstream he was swimming upstream and sands up there going ha ha look who got the last laugh now these guys it's a cockfight let's be honest who's got the bigger fucking dick <laughs> yeah that that's the, that is all true he did have the upstream thing something you have to wonder how much was it dave's fault um a, this is not something i talk about in the book but a person who worked with dave for a long time who's one of these many people who's like yeah dave never talked to me ever again because he decided i didn't I did something that I didn't do. Well, there's a lot of those. He uh, had told me with, oh, should I go into that? I don't know. Do, don't yeah. go into My source told me that the book publisher who published Dave's autobiography just gave him the rights back. Instead of the, hey, this is a two book deal and this is great. They're kind of like, yeah, we don't want to deal with this guy. You take it back. So, there was difficulty in that. The way that we see that the DLR band album has gone out of print for the most part. It's some of the songs are currently available on Amazon Music, but that's gone away. And a different kind of truth has gone away. 
Sometimes you wonder, is there a strategy or, or is he pretending like there's a strategy, you know? Yeah, I don't know what his angle is. Why do you remake these classic songs in a worse version and <laughs> and the in the in the John 5 stuff? I get the whole marketing angle, you know, dropping a single every couple, you know, months. John 5 hyped that up forever yes. as the greatest coming of the, <laughs> the 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 album you've you've missed forever from Dave. And I'm I'll be the first to admit, I don't there's not one song that's blown me away so far. I, unpopular opinion, but I'm with you. I think that under-promising and over-delivering is super important as a life skill in art. If you say, hey, this is the best thing you're going to hear all week, it better be really good. And some of these John 5 songs, you go, there's no chorus. What, what's happening here? I mean, the Rainbow Bar and Grill song, like over the Rainbow Bar and Grill, like, really, guys? No, no, no. That song, that song is, that's all, Ed, that's that's a great song. That that puts a lump in my throat because it is, especially, that, that song is like the soundtrack to the Greg Renoff book, the Van Halen Rising. You Good point. I'll have to disagree with you on that, Walt, but what... Uh, what five was saying again, he was making it sound like this is like, you know, eat them and smile part two. We were thinking, you know, it was going to be riffing. No, but, no, um, Berno, I'm going to take it to the mat. And I'm going to go with Walt on this one, but I'm going to have, I'm going to make you both equally dislike me. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So rainbow bar grill is a good song, but it's kind of nonsense that Dave is talking about all these memories there. Because did you see the documentary that they had come out on the rainbow? It was filmed right before COVID. I think they finished it during COVID. Uh, is it? I th- I think so. Was uh, Lemmy prominent in it? Was Lemmy's it- prominent in it. Gene Simmons is super prominent. And you go, Gene Simmons didn't move to LA until maybe what, 84, 83. Gene Simmons, who does not drink. Gene Simmons, who does generally not go out in the way that we do, because Gene Simmons talks about not having friends on purpose. Mm -hmm. The big person is like, the rainbow is very important. I was always there. Like, no, you weren't. And so the rainbow occasionally would have concerts in the parking lot, but it wasn't a music venue. It was just a pizza place by a pizza place that people drank and hung out with booths. And certain bands had their booths there. I don't remember hearing all these stories about Dave hanging out at the rainbow. So some of these Dave things, you have to wonder if, is he writing from the perspective of somebody else? Well, he is a showman. Let's be honest. Yeah. He, when you go back to the beginnings of Dave, what was it? Who was it? Who was his influence? Al Jolson. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was right. It was That's where he got his stick from. Al Jolson, who my 86 and a half year old father remembers. And Jim Dandy from Black Oak, Arkansas. And you could argue Motown and Soul Singers. Ohio players. And, you know, like he said, when he came over from Indiana, he's in Pasadena. He went to school with all the all the black kids. He was, you know, that's where he got his jive. And and just the ripping off of Jim Dandy. I mean, all the way down to like the fair warning stage gear. <laughs> it's blatantly big Jim Dandy, Black Oak, Arkansas. 
We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Van Halen, that South American tour in 82 and 83, the uh, No Monk book, and exactly how tight was Eddie Van Halen and Gene Simmons. We'll be right back with Darren Paltrowitz in his new book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. Metal Mayhem ROC. I'm Metalhead. Metal Mayhem ROC is the home for metal from the very beginnings. This is James DeBerry from Hellstar. You're listening to Burnomatic. Dave Overkill from the Cleveland band Destructor. Hey, Dave, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's a longtime headliner. Hey, this is Red Beach from Whitesnake. Hey, this is Vinny Apathy from Dio, Black Sabbath, and Last in Line. To music of today. Hi, this is Olaf Wickstrand from Enforcer. Hi, this is Brian from Mastodon. You're listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. With John the Vernomatic Burner. Plus, we talk with producers and authors to give you behind-the-scenes info. Hi, this is William Merwin, author of The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. Greg Renoff, the author of the book Van Halen Rising, and the uh, Ted Templeman book A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. Giving you more to listen for. Join our community. And always remember to keep it heavy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Hey, Darren, I got a question. And I got an answer. 
Tell me if this is is it is where this is contained in your book, but a very yes or no question. Did you ever meet David Lee Roth? And what was that interaction like if you did? There is only the interview that's in chapter one, the 2003 phone call, unfortunately. But I have met and spent time with a lot of people who know Dave. I now get a lot of texts in the middle of the, of the night from people Dave used to talk to. Well, so, so, such as name some names, band members, solo band members. Give us some names. Um, I do not want to get people who are under NDAs in trouble, but let's just say it's people who've played with him in the last five years that I'm friendly with. And the book has conversations with every from people from every era of Dave's life. So I have an interview, which I believe is in the first chapter with Dave's cousin, Jack, who is a prominent doctor in the Houston area who gave me a rundown on the family tree. Then some of the early chapters have talks with Dave Jellison. He was the original or maybe the second bassist in Rat, who was supposed to assistant direct Crazy from the Heat. So some of the times I'd be like, Dave, I have a question that only you would have because you were there from Diver Down till the beginning of Skyscraper. Did this happen? Then there are certain things that I go, okay, this happened in this year. I need my Dave Whisperer from this era. Okay, this was an early mm. 2000s one. I'm going to that person. Okay, this was a late 2000s one. Uh, so pretty much the book is a lot of different uh, Dave Whisperers from different eras. And some of, some of the people are not under NDAs and will happily talk to me if I have a question like Linda, who is Dave's EMT teacher. Linda's the nicest. And Doug Short, who I mentioned before, who passed, who was the tour manager, he would answer questions about different things. And does that answer your question? Did I get way off wall? No, just just just, no. just curious about, you know, who were you speaking to and who the sources were and you know again it's nice that like you said early up front it's almost like private investigation work validating is this true or is it bullshit sure is it factual darren's a licensed private investigator for better or worse i i am and that's the the day job so what happened with you know writing this book is you would think you had the full story and then you talk to somebody else and go oh you spoke to that guy nope and there are certain people who'd go, oh, yeah, Noel Monk's book, total work of fiction. And you go, tell me more. <laughs> and there's other people going, you can't record this. I'll tell you this. And so the book, you know, I, I had to know, I had to keep in mind that everything was taken in with a grain of salt. But if you hear something enough times from enough people who are around different eras of Dave, you go, how can this not be true? And if this isn't true, mm. don't sue me, sue the publisher. They published it. I do have a quick comment on that Noel Monk book because I've listened to it many times. And the one thing I've always thought to myself was it's a great story, yeah. but no one has come forward to say, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Um, The closest there was, was the story about when um, Van Halen and Dave and Eddie got in that um, cake fight with Steve Perry of Journey. And they splattered him with a cake and supposedly Steve Perry started crying. Well, Steve came forward and said, that's bullshit. I wasn't crying. And and, and then I also heard his guacamole from some people with Steve Perry. But but um, with Noel's commentary, one of the people I've now mentioned like 18 times, Dave Jellison, 
who I hope I haven't taken him out of his anonymous career as a huge commercial director, huge marketing guy. In other words, David Lee Roth would be like the 20th footnote on his credits at this point in time. It's mm-hmm. not Dave Jellison, parentheses, rat, David Lee Roth. It's not like that at all. So uh, I asked him, I'm pretty sure this was on the record-ish, but I don't know if I put it in there, about Noel's book. And he said, well, one thing that Noel says in the book that's totally incorrect And again, Dave was a crew member, 82, 83, 84, that kind of thing, was Noel was talking about how the South America tour was the band firing all cylinders and at their peak. And Dave's going, no, uh, everything was absolutely a mess behind the scenes. The specific kind of drugs allegedly uh, the band wanted were not available down there. The exchange rate of currency was insane so people could buy other drugs very uh crazily some girlfriends were around some girlfriends were not around not everybody was getting along people throwing things at the stage i don't know if it's one of the shows you could watch on youtube but big ed had his hands full with security beyond the Mm -hmm. drugs beyond the women beyond the infighting beyond everyone being tired but noel monk and i didn't i admit i own noel's book i started reading it i didn't finish it if he said, if I've misquoted, I apologize. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But what I've heard is he talks about that tour being great. You know, I, I, I know the timeline and Diver Down, they were turning the corner on the uh, bad relations. Ed was building the studio. There was, they were imploding and, you know, they didn't travel well together. I still don't even know why they went down to South America. There was a short, tu- there was a short tour. I'm sure there was money involved and Dave the Adventurer wanted to do that because I find that Dave wants to do things if it has to check one or both of these boxes. It pays a lot of money or it's a bucket list thing. That's everything. So if you went, hey, Dave, I'll give you 2500 bucks to do this, he'd go, no. But if you went, hey, Dave, pay me 2500 bucks, and you're going to hang out with a bunch of kangaroos and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he'll go, I'm listening. That's what you said in the book. Dave quoted as I have the money. I want the adventure. I want to go do something fun. And it just so happened that he was the lead singer of Van Halen. Uh, I'm going to let Walt ask you a few questions, but I just had one comment going back to Gene Simmons and the whole uh, discovering Van Halen, if you will. And he gave himself a big pat on the back that, oh, he took credit for ripping up the contract and letting them out of uh, the contract. Yeah. And, you know, you interviewed Gene in person when he said that. What was your thoughts when he was saying all that? We're like, all right, Gene, you know. Um, well, thank you for reading. You really did your research right there. That was my first in-person Gene interview. I, for the record, like Gene a lot. I think it's a wrestling persona, this whole like hateable <laughs> yeah. character. This He's like classy Freddie Blassie <laughs> in, in some kind of way. But I would believe that that he did that with the contract. But what I don't I, I don't think the timeline fully makes sense because he produces supposedly and and Walt, help me if I've gotten anything out of sequence here. This is what I believe happened. Paul Stanley saw Van Halen at some club, told Gene to come back. Gene comes back. Gene becomes the aggressor who's gonna sell them to the world because at that time Gene and Paul were trying to bring bands to Casablanca that they could produce and all that. 
and some of them like uh new england was i think one of them and not angel stars angel was yep. it stars and angel yep okay so he did that and that was the first of maybe four times where gene went i'm gonna produce and sign bands that i take the publishing of so i think that van halen was one of those for him now he walked away from them that he didn't in a way that he did not for all the other bands in other words i don't think he went hey house of lords here's your masters back yeah no well <laughs> well bill bill a coin passed on him gene brought gene brought van halen to new york yes they did the zero demo brought it up to a coin and bill passed on them and at that point you know it was like 76 77 it was 76 and you know gene had to get back to his day job he's like well you know if if uh coin isn't gonna grab him so Yes, he let him out of the contract, but it was more after the fact. I think he's taking credit for it. It's like, I was the bigger man, and you know, I let him out of their contract. And those in the industry would say, oh, you did a stupid thing. But Okay, so there, that's the first part of it. Then the next part is, in that same interview with Gene, he was pushing the Gene Simmons vault at that time. And he was saying, Alex and Eddie played on two songs on this. And mm-hmm. if the lore is correct... Ace freely learned the solo for Christine 16 from what Eddie did on the demo. I yeah. didn't buy the $2,000 vault to verify that. I didn't scrape through YouTube to listen to that mm-hmm. condolences to anyone who did, but I, I th- that continued. Then Gene tells these stories about how he ran into Eddie in Long Beach, California, and Eddie drove him home from a thing. So it makes it seem like it's this long-term friendship but I'm, and, and then there's also the story that Eddie came crying to him out of frustration with Dave and he wanted Ace's job and kiss and Gene yeah. talk him out of it. So I don't know if it's the kind of thing where, you know how you tell the story once and it goes over well. So you tell it again, but you cut the filler and then the next time you cut the filler <laughs> and next time you cut the filler. And then you have this like perfect five minute thing with paused beats. Is that what Gene has been doing about Van Halen or? Oh, well, yeah. Well, the story you talk about, uh, he went to go see Van Halen at uh, the Forum 1980 tour, and he saw this show. And then after the show, supposedly, Eddie drove him home in their in his Jeep with no roof. And Gene's telling the story that he's holding on for dear life. And, you know, Eddie's just driving real fast. And to expand on what you're talking about, what, uh, Gene and Eddie have this long relationship. Whenever he's in L.A., they hang out and... It's okay. It's Logical question. This is me wearing my investigator hat. How did Gene get to the show if Eddie drove him home? Well, he probably took a limo or something. Oh, so the limo left. Okay, then then part two here. Long Beach is not that close to Malibu, <laughs> where I believe Ed was a, living at that point. Maybe Gene was in Sherman Oaks. LA people are really insane when it comes to oh i'm not going to the valley today i'm not going over that that's an extra 40 minutes of traffic la people grudgingly will go anywhere that's more than 15 minutes away we read the same book i heard that uh you know it's it's and i love gene and i am a kiss fan i grew up on them they were my gateway band and yes that's a good point they're they're a gateway band for me too now walt same deal for you was kiss the gateway to van halen i would yeah i yeah i could see that sure i i I don't know if i have an opinion on that but i'll I'll say yes 
it, I mean, I'm too young for that to have been the case, but I would get anyone who used Kiss as a gateway band to other bands because Kiss was not heavy, despite the image. Musically, Kiss was not heavy. Kiss was like a soul R&B band that happened right, to man. get loud at times. And you can also say the same thing about Van Halen. Van Halen was not heavy, at, aside from a handful of songs. Uh, loss of control, things like that. They weren't a heavy band, but for some reason they're forever called a hard rock or a metal band or something. <laughs> a rock and well, roll band, that's it. Yeah. Van Halen is high-velocity folk music. That's what Dave used to always say. Speaking of uh, cliche Dave statements, right? <laughs> and I think we all had an interest in them, and it was, at least for me, seeing the California Girls video, well, going before back before that, Hot for Teacher, sure. right? We uh, there was a whole second career of Dave that was like a comedian, you know. I don't feel tardy, and then you get the the Yankee Rose video. Give me a bottle of anything and a glazed donut to go, go, go. And I remember going to these shows, Eat 'Em and Smile, at the Meadowlands Arena, and it's he comes out uh, and the second song, Panama, and he puts his arms out and he holds it there for two minutes and he goes, "Look at all the people here tonight." Yeah. And on and on and on. There was a famous show I was at in the late 90s down in St. Petersburg, Florida, where a fan threw a piece of ice, hit him in the eye. He had to stop the show, restart the song. And later he got into this stick and he ended up talking about how there was a this show was a Niagara of Viagra. So, Darren, in your discussions, (laughs) Is Dave as creative as he makes himself to be, or does he have this team of people drawing up these blueprints for tour phrases? You know, you're so sweet, you can shit sugar. Looking at the fake girl in the crowd every night talking to the fake one. Is he really just a showman delivering, or is he really creative? Complex answer to, to that. His, I think on the one hand, he's borrowed from the best and he's refined like an editor or a curator would. So credit goes to that. I think at different times, he's had people on his team looking out for him to find him stuff. And at the same time, he is a seeker and a curious guy. So one story without giving too much away that's in the book is I interviewed Melissa Elena Reiner. You see her playing violin during the No Holds Barbecue home video, mm-hmm. um, whatever you want to call it. It's not a documentary. It's not sketch comedy. It's it's something. And she told me that I said, so when's the last time you heard from Dave? And the truth is, you know, it's been decades. But she said that Dave's manager reached out after the fact to go. Hey, Dave wants to learn about violin. Can you go to, you know, Tower Records or whatever, buy a bunch of violin related albums and stuff and, you know, send us the receipt and all that. So I can't imagine how many people Dave has done that to. And I want to learn about parachutes. And then he finds a parachute Hmm. person who I want to learn about tambourines. Find me a good tambourine album. And that way, when he's doing these interviews like Joe Rogan, he hears a buzzword and then he can chip in to the conversation like well did you know that baccarat was invented by the the mayans and or t- that's dave's mo i know more than you i'm going to show you how i know more than you and i'm going to make it entertaining you know it's just enough about a lot of stuff yes. to 
And and the th- going back to while you were talking about Dave with these uh, you know well timed shtick phrases. Well, remember back then there was no social media. Right. There wasn't anything, so he could get away with saying something in Chicago and doing it again in Boston and the same, uh, you know, I'm going to F your girlfriend after the show, pal, or, you know, look at all the people here tonight. And and that I'm curious, uh, Darren, in your, again, discussions, research, right? Dave, Dave goes through this period where, you know, he takes over for Howard Stern as the morning DJ. And and I'm I'm not going to lie. I was excited. I was there on day one on that Monday morning at whatever, 7, 8 a.m. and turned it on. You know, I can't remember if the EMT gig came before or after, but like there's this pocket of time where, you know, again, you wonder, is it Dave's curiosity to seek more knowledge and get more life experiences or did he need the money? I don't know. Like what, you know, again, I go back to these, the 90s and 2000s. His shows were great, but he had, Wait. he was just ripping off the Atomic Punks. He was stealing their guitar players. Ray Lugier was the standard drummer who ended up in corn. He had a Japanese guy once playing with him. I remember oh, she, seeing yeah. him at the Beacon yeah. Theater. Yeah. Um, I think he had James, James Lomenzo. And yes. then yep. there was the ill, not the ill-fated. The last time I saw Dave was pre-COVID when he got the opening slot for Kiss. And I went out to Allentown to see him and- yeah, I played his hour. It was a good show, but don't know who this band was. Was it like the latest and greatest Van Halen tribute band out of L.A. that he just <laughs> plucked again? Well, I can answer a few things in there. Do I want me to answer about the band first or whatever you feel like? Well, who the band uh, was is the same people who played on these. Actually, no, it's not. No, it's not. Correction. There has been a revolving door of sidemen over the last 10 years for him. So who played for him on the Kiss Tour? The If you saw the first, I think, four shows, the drummer was Michael Musselman. Then in the middle of the tour, uh, Dave sacked him. Why he did is actually a funny story, but I don't want to violate anyone's NDA at this time. Maybe I'll tell you offline. But uh, the drummer for the last batch of shows before COVID uh, ruined the tour was Francis Valentino, who played on these Van Halen re-records. Bassist Ryan Wheeler. Ryan Wheeler, one of the things I was saying before about Dave Jellison, where if you did Dave Jellison parentheses, it wouldn't say Rat Van Halen because he's done all these award-winning commercials and, and things. With Ryan Wheeler, I don't think at this point you would put Dave as like one of the first six names there. Man, that guy is on big tours and writing for people, producing, scoring films and all of that. But his social media presence, maybe it's it, the, on purpose. He's keeping a low profile. It, it, if that makes sense. Now that he doesn't want you to come to him asking for something, but the dude is working on big stuff. Uh, the guitarist, Alistrada was a Van Halen tribute band guy, not atomic punks. Not sure which one he's from though. I think a Vegas one, maybe, maybe, but did Dave pluck these guys? Did Dave pay these guys? Did these guys come in the cheap? Was Dave at this stage of his career? Does he need money? Like, you oh, know, okay. I, I just think of these things, you know, no, like a few things. When when Dave hires you, he pays you very well. I've never heard of him cheaping out on, on somebody. Dave takes care of you, but in turn, you're Dave's. So whether he uses you nonstop or barely, you know, 
that comes with the great payday to be expected. So he's very generous on that end. In terms of the band, I think they cast themselves. Uh, before Al Estrada was on guitar, it was a revolving door for that guitar spot. So for a little while, there was this guy named Chris Griotti. And if you eventually Google Chris Griotti and you did parentheses, you know, Chris Griotti, parentheses, I think Dave, if he appeared, would be like the 24th name down the parentheses. Because Chris is writing and producing hits for so many people. And Dave did this public rehearsal, dress rehearsal thing for friends and family. And that was the photo shoot. They did it. And then he sacked half the band. So you'll look closely in some of the photos. It's only three or four photos that kind of get looped in this video thing. You see Brett Tuggle playing guitar in it. Tuggle was in the band, the music director. They got sacked. So Tuggle has been in and out of the David Lee Roth band like three, four times. And unfortunately, we lost him right. earlier this year. Yeah. But he was the mainstay, too. I mean, he was the guy. He was the only guy that, well, him and Greg Bissonnette were the only guys that made it out of the 80s at least. But when you got into the 90s, I think it was only Brett Tuggle left. Tuggle and Bissonnette were both there for the A Little Ain't Enough tour. So they made it to 91. Then Tuggle was on the 94 touring. I think Bissonnette was offered it but couldn't do it or didn't want to do it. And he helped kick it to Ron Wixo, who was doing the tour. Three different drummers on that Your Filthy Little Mouth album. Then Bissonnette came back for these John Five sessions. People don't talk about that. And so did Tuggle, which him and Dave, I think, had a bad falling out. Uh, Insiders have, I think you'll like this. I don't know if this is violating anyone's thing, but they refer to Dave's dynamic with Brett Tuggle as the Tuggle struggle. Yeah. (laughs) The 1994 (laughs) tour. I saw it earlier before the show. You were talking about Stuttering John. Stuttering John opened up for that tour with Cheap Trick, and they play that Suntan Lake in New Jersey, which was like a little summer beach spot. And I just remember that tour because Dave was starting to lose his hair, and he became bald, and he cut his hair short, and it was not until 99 when he came back with the full head of Van Halen hair, and you're like, aha, something's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> That tour, um, I was unfortunately too young, but that played, I live in a beach town on Long Island called Long Beach, and he played at the beach club venue in this town too. And then I think a couple of years later when he was doing the DLR band touring, he played in a Hamptons beach club kind of place here on Long Island. So you never know if that's because these were the best offers on the table or Dave right. genuinely wanted to surf. Because I've heard stories of he doesn't show up to sound soundcheck. He's not there much before he goes on stage, he was at the beach all day, or he was surfing, or he was riding his bike, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I saw David Lee Roth at uh, Turning Stone Casino in Central New York in 2002, and it's a great show. And it was one of those weird casino shows where you could bring in your own booze, and you're sitting at a table right at the front of the stage. It was like, you know, something totally against, you know, 180 from what you're used to. Sure. But it was a real good show. He came walking out, did, you know, I think Brian Young was with him and James. I think it was that that band that Walt was talking about. Yep. Well, after the show, uh, we were hanging out outside the tour buses, and he's inside the tour bus, and he's there's only like 10 of us there. He had made us wait an hour, and he comes out of the tour bus, and, guys, he was acting like it was outside the Philly Spectrum in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, Dave, there's like, 
and you know, eight of us here, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, no. he's like signing something. Hey, here you go, man, looking around. Like, all right, Dave, thanks, man. But um, so it's just the persona. Is he always on? And let's jump into some of the um, EMT days. You mentioned a little while ago he was very fond of those EMT people in the book. You mentioned that he got recertified recent or recently, but he always took care of those crews with tickets and all access and sent them to the different boroughs. What could you share about the EMT days and the DJ and, you know, more of the DJ issue? Why did that fizzle out? And just comment on that. So the EMT thing, uh, Walt had mentioned before that started before the radio show, the radio show launched in uh, January, 2006, they'd done the test shows in the months before that. So really 2005 is when that started and the EMT stuff predates. There was this period of early 2000s where like Dave has kind of always gone between New York and LA. He's always had homes in both places, but it's obvious that he's in one place more. In early 2000s, he was all over New York and people were spotting him. Burt Kreischer has told the story about like a pre-fame Burt Kreischer, Dave recognizing him from a Rolling Stone article. And it's just, which goes with the whole thing. Dave just reads a lot and he remembers faces and he remembers anything allegedly that's ever said about him as the story goes. But there's plenty of cases where we know he didn't invent Eddie Van Halen's, you know, Frankenstrat. Anyway, (laughs) there's all these stories are in New York. Oh, Dave was here. We saw Dave here. I was talking to Walter Schreifels. He was the singer of Quicksand and Rival Schools and Gorilla Biscuits. He was in as well. And he's like, oh, yeah, these guys at Ludlow Guitars, they used to see Dave all the time. So everyone used to see him. I heard that his apartment, you know, when you look down the mail, the mail slot thing and the names, it said DLR on it. So he was just in the community of the Lower East Side of Chinatown border but he also had his place in Midtown and then also had his place in Financial District. He had supposedly, allegedly, three homes in New York City at the same time that is going between and the, the radio station. Now, why didn't the radio station work out? Uh, he's not a big rehearsal guy. He's not. He's big on prep in terms of practicing to learn something, but he's not big on prep in terms of... Uh, I'm going to sit here and write for a long time. He's one of those, like, if you don't get it right the the second time or the third time, it's done. So he delegated the show prep to other people. He didn't want to do rehearsal kind of stuff. And then on the other side of things, management was going, well, Howard Stern left K-Rock with these numbers. Davis sold X number of million of albums. So we're going to be starting at these numbers. And they didn't really give Dave the chance to be Dave. They didn't want him to, quote, play ethnic music because, you know, Dave is big on dance remixes and world music and all that. They did want him to interview. They didn't want him to do this. Um, Supposedly, they had different ideas of what the studio should look like, who should be on the show. They weren't giving him great help with booking guests. So it was kind of like going, well, this guy's famous. He'll have a following. But, you know, Howard Stern took decades to become Howard Stern, right? Yeah. Listen, I'm not going to say he was set up for failure, but anybody walking into that chair was not going to succeed 
for the simple fact is you're not Howard Stern. I think, and, and and you know what? I mean, Dave lasted what six months, three months, and I don't remember yeah. w- what they put on afterwards. But I do remember it was like a very bland, generic, and maybe a like a sports talk show after that. But I, it's probably management failing, saying, you know what, we shouldn't have tried a major star to replace a major star. Bottom line, and then all the other people probably went over and started listening to Stern on the paid XM or whatever it was. You know, I, I'm a big Howard Stern fan through maybe 2010, 2008, 2010, somewhere around there. And one of the things that made Howard Stern great was the whack pack, his extension of personalities. Because at a certain point, you realize Howard's not really saying much. He just curates, okay, that's a joke writer. That's a joke writer. That's a freak. That's another freak. That's a very attractive lady. That's a famous person. You put them all in a room. And just magic happens if it's the right personalities. So Dave was kind of trying to do that with his show by having Brian Young playing in and out of commercials on guitar, having his security guard Animal sitting in. Animal, uh, before bodyguarding for Dave, did it for Easy e and Bone Thugs at Harmony. So Animal <laughs> has stories to tell. Linda, the EMT uh, teacher that I mentioned before, who was briefly also his personal assistant, Linda would sit in on stuff. Hutch, who I interviewed for the book, John Hutchinson, retired radio producer, he was in the room. So you had these interesting people. I don't remember if Matt Pincus's manager was a regular on-air person. Haven't listened in a while to those shows, which are still on YouTube. But I think that they were expecting immediately a Howard Stern replacement instead of realizing Howard didn't start out with Stuttering John and Beetlejuice and Gary the Conqueror and Tan Mom, all those things came later over time. Yeah. Uh, Dave, Dave, I make the, uh, I just thought of this. Dave is like cheesecake. It's good for one or two bites, but you can't have a lot of it. Then it turns you off. But um, that, That's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a Daveism. <laughs> Listen, uh, th- there's so much in this book, and we've just barely touched the surface. Darren did a a thorough job going through uh, Dave living in Tokyo, the reunion, what happened there, uh, and all the way up until the end. And, you know, just circling back, a couple quick thoughts, uh, the Sam and Dave tour, and you mentioned um, there was uh, some new music that ended up on a different kind of truth recorded at 5150. Comment on that quickly. That came to me through Frank Meyer. Frank, uh, if we're going to continue the, the parentheses credits, I think Dave would probably be the 12th person in Frank's credit lines. Uh, you know, it would say Streetwalking Cheetahs because he's the singer of that band who's still doing it. And he's directing stuff. I think he's working with LeBron James's company. Uh, his brother is the actor Brecken Meyer. He grew up with the Zappa kids. There should be a Frank Meyer memoir, in my humble opinion, because genius guy who's always been around cool people but anyway frank got that exclusive for matt who was um dave's manager in the late 90s early 2000s that dave had cut a couple of songs with the van halen brothers and michael anthony kind of live in the studio the songs cut off after 90 seconds and part of that was dave going oh so you guys can't screw me and sell this and all that i don't know if that means that the two songs from the best of uh, from 96. I don't know if there was drama about publishing splits or anything like that, or 
royalties, and that's what that was. But Dave did not go into those sessions going, I trust these guys. These are my friends. This is more of a, do we have the magic? Supposedly, it sounds great. It's just, they didn't finish it. It was just a, a test. And maybe only four songs, which wound up later on a different kind of truth in completed form without Mikey and instead with Wolfgang. Yeah. And there are the original ones, as is uh, Trouble Would Never, Blood and Fire, yeah. you know, th- those originals. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we had a chance to do a two-parter with Andrew Bennett. Oh, yeah. That had the, yeah. And th- th- that book, that was a different period, but they did touch on sort of when Dave came back in the band and that was just basically uh Wolfgang's doing, they yeah. were just jamming and Wolfie really said to Ed, you know, we should get Dave back in and, and, you know, Ed nonchalantly, well, here's his number, give him a call. And as the story goes, Wolfie called Mr. Lee Roth and, then they get Dave came back down. He went to the studio with his microphone and a little case, and you know, turned into a 12 year reunion. So, thank, thank um, uh, the Lord that one happened as opposed to because Eddie was open to collaborating at that point. That's the same era where he jammed with Fred Durst, and that's the same era where he did that porn soundtrack. <laughs> thank God, it was that was what Wolfie said he should do. If yeah, thank <laughs> God for Wolfie. So, if Wolfie said. You know, you really should join this De- Dexy's Midnight Runners uh, reunion. That would be the great move, Dad. We could have been subjected to other stuff. Everyone gives Wolf a hard time, but, uh, you know, he was just a kid and, you know, he performed. I saw all those tours multiple times and guys, a hell of a talent. You know, good luck to him with the mammoth. I'm not the first one on board with it, but. Hey, it is Ed's son, so best of luck to him. Ed's Ed's son, and I'm going to interrupt you, and I'm going to say possibly as good of a guitar player as his dad. All those hawking gigs were fantastic. Yeah. With him ripping those. The the songs are one thing, but he he has all of his father's talent for for playing instruments, and supposedly he's better at drums than he is guitar. So I, I have a feeling that we have not seen everything to come from Wolfie that you may eventually get your Van Halen tribute or your Van Halen sounding stuff. That's inspired. I'd, I'd say the chapter's not closed yet. Well, your take. I, 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 I would agree. I think uh, right now he's got to boost his own career though. And he is the one to live in the spotlight of his dad. It's probably what his dad didn't, his dad didn't want that. And the kid's yeah. off to a good start. He landed on these Metallica tours you yeah. know what? If there was ever an occasion for him to jump on stage, it would be this coming summer. You know, he could sit in with the with Sam and get on there and jump in at the end and do a couple songs on the encore. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe that'll prompt it. But again, do we? You know, it feels natural for us as fans to say, "Ah, let's just let Wolfie come in and play Van Halen." But you know what? You don't want to be a shadow of living in the shadow of your dad. It's not right for him. He's a young guy. No, and we've seen, you know, A.J. Croce, who does the Jim Croce thing, that's great. We've seen people who eventually go, okay, I want to give everyone the tribute that my father, mother, or brother deserve. The Edgar Winter, Johnny Winter tribute. Never say never with a good tribute. So, you know what? Throw in a song at the end of your headlining show. Do a Van Halen song or two at the end as an encore. Or that. But, Verno, I've interrupted you so many damn times. So, back to you, buddy. (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, I'm just, uh, you know, we get, well, this is a precursor for part two and we'll, we'll get into it even more, but, um, Hey, Darren, where can people find you, your product? 
plug yourself, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you guys for reading, doing all the research, et cetera. I'm at Paltrow. It's like Gwyneth Paltrow with an ITZ at the end. On most of the social media, my show, the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrow, it's on 150 channels plus OTT stuff like Local Now, which Byron Allen owns. You got to say Byron Allen's name a lot if you want your traffic to grow. Say Byron Allen, say Van Allen, your traffic grows. But there's that stuff. There's the DLR cast, which I host with Steve Roth. Usually put out mm-hmm. one, two episodes a month. And there is this new DLR book, which uh, just happens to be right there, which uh, Backbeat and Roman Littlefield are putting out January 1st. So you guys have been so supportive and can't stop saying nothing but thanks. You're welcome. And you know what? Um, Van Halen, we could go all day. (laughs) So happy holidays to you and yours. And uh, again, you will be a return guest on uh, Metal Mayhem ROC. Guarantee it. You're too kind. Thank you for the great work you do. Thank you for spotlighting the music that matters, you two. Keep it up, all the greatness. And looking forward to what you got coming in 2024. Okay, Darren. Happy holidays again. Thanks. Happy holidays. See you, Darren. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.